We are going to continue our series tonight, What is to Come, as I think we have probably two or three more messages in this series uh, as we come towards the end of What is to Come. I've certainly enjoyed studying uh, these many different scriptures and uh, what is going to be taking place. And uh, we recognize tonight, I think most, most God's people recognize uh, that the time is short and uh, we know that in scriptures, the apostles and the disciples recognized the time was short, and certainly it is so today. Daniel, it's good to have you tonight. It's Daniel's second week. It's good to have you tonight, brother. Glad that you're here. And other guests, thank you for being here. We're glad to have you tonight. Revelation chapter number 19, if you look at verse number 1 with me of Revelation chapter number 19, tonight we're going to cover what I've titled the message as Seven Dooms. The seven dooms, and as God is beginning to uh, wrap up, if you will, uh, the different groups of people and situations on the earth towards the end of the Great Tribulation, we see here in Scripture many things that He does. Revelation chapter number 19, look at verse number 1. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Central Valley Baptist Church, may we say that verse together. Let's read it together. Ready, begin. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. Can you imagine being in heaven when the multitude of God's people are saying that? Glory, hallelujah. As we near the end of the, se- of the series... We're going to, for the next several weeks, look at how God wraps up the Great Tribulation. During this series, we've taken a journey from the signs of the time, seeing what's going on in the world around us today, recognizing those signs, uh, to last week and the weeks previous, we talked about the seven vials. We looked at the signs around us pointing to the imminent return of Christ. We studied the doctrine that gives us hope in the rapture. We then took a journey through the tribulation. We studied the four horsemen, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the abomination of desolation, and finally tonight, oh, and finally the seven vials. And so now we, as we come to the end, we looked at the battle of Armageddon, and it has been fought. Babylon has fallen, and now God must deal with those who have rejected His grace, who have rejected His salvation, who have rejected Christ. And God is going to deal with those uh, men and women on the earth and the other, uh, uh, the other spiritual entities involved after the great tribulation. So tonight, as we get into the seven dooms, let's ask the Lord to help us learn. Let's pray. Father, we need your help tonight as we study your word. Help us to uh, listen and retain. And Lord, help us, Lord, to have encouragement to know, uh, God, that you are a God who's not slack concerning his promises. And Lord, we recognize that tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. May I just, uh, uh, before I get into the message, remind you, uh, as mankind mocks the Lord and mocks God, He is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness. And God will bring full circle everything that He says He is going to do. Revelation chapter number 17, if you'll go there with me really quickly, back a few chapters to Revelation chapter number 17. The first doom we're going to talk about tonight is ecclesiastical Babylon, 
the great. Ecclesiastical Babylon, the great. And you'll understand that, what I mean by that here as we read uh, Revelation 17. Look at verses 1. And there came one out uh, of the seven angels, which had seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, come hither. Of course, this angel is talking to John as he's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He's writing down the things that he's seen, the things that the Lord has showed him. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication, verse 3. So he carried me away to the, in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-covered beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns." And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was the name written, Mystery Babylon the Great. That's important. Mystery, comma, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Just as a... Uh, Sort of a disclaimer here, I don't claim to know the, the scratching the surface of Revelation. Uh, people study their entire lives on the book of Revelation and just start scratching the surface of all of these things. Tonight, I'm going to give you just a, a brief overview of what, uh, what I've studied, what I believe about what this person is here, what this entity is, the ecclesiastical Babylon. So we see here that God deals with the restored ancient city of Babylon how many recognize that there was an ancient city of Babylon whose ruler we talked about this morning, Nebuchadnezzar? And you remember the story as, as Nebuchadnezzar became filled with pride. He walked into his kingdom and he looked all around him and he said, look at what I've done. And immediately God uh, made him like a wild beast. You know the story. He went out into the field, his nails grew long, his hair, and, and he became uh, like a wild beast and lost his mind because of the pride. And God destroyed that ancient city of Babylon. And so we see here in this chapter 17, we're introduced to a woman, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother, the mother of harlots and abominations, as God has some very choice words for this lady, this woman. It is to be clear that the woman here is not the city of Babylon, but ecclesiastical Babylon, or a, a church, if you will, a church that is anti-God. How many recognize today that around the world there are religions that say they believe in Jesus Christ, they say they believe in God, but they are not the true church, they're not true religions, they're preaching against Scripture. How many recognize that today? The Bible says that if somebody says that Jesus Christ is not God then they don't truly believe in God. But there are many religions today with hundreds of thousands of followers that believe in a false God. And how many understand today that if they believe in a false Jesus Christ or believe in a false God, they will not be raptured with the church. And they will be further deceived by what they see. And many people believe that towards the end times that the, the Mormon church and the Jehovah Witnesses and the Catholics will all come together and, and sing Kumbaya together. And I don't know how that's going to work, and neither does anybody else. But, but we understand that there will be an ecclesiastical Babylon at this point, which will be the false church. Who is this woman? Many people have different opinions here, and, and of course, many have written about this. But one of the most popular opinions is that this woman, uh, called Mystery here, is the papal church 
or the papal church plus other uh, churches that are false religions, a conglomerate church of that day, if you will. Think about the false religions around the world getting together uh, because the true Christians will be uh, those that have the Holy Spirit. Those that, have, that believe and reject the mark of the beast will either be raptured in the church or they'll be martyred during the Great Tribulation. And so there will be a false religion on the earth at this particular time. We know that the ecumenical state of the church today is getting to the point where uh, people are ignoring doctrine to work together and, and become together. And, and I'm not against, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, helping and, and all these things. But when it comes to certain doctrines, we need to be careful that we stay separated. If it disagrees with the scriptures now. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Uh, and so there's a lot of, that's not the message tonight, but we need to be careful about that because uh, that ecumenical philosophy will come in at this time where uh, these false religions and the, the papal church, the ecumenical church of that day will come together and create uh, something that is not what God would have. And, and so here's several things about what people believe about the papal church uh, that this woman mentioned here is the, the papal church. So the first thing here is letter A is the mystery of the papal church. This woman is referred to as Mystery Babylon. The papal church has always been shrouded in mystery. And by the way, if you think about cults and, and religions, false religions, many times they're shrouded in mystery. Why is that? Because if their followers knew the truth, they'd say, I don't think so. <laughs> but they don't. So they shroud things in mystery. They have uh, mysterious hierarchies, and, uh, and also many of these religions, the papal church included, have a lot of superstitious interpretations of Scripture. If you go to a cultures where uh, this is prevalent, you'll see a lot of superstitions. There are dubious doctrines and very strange uh, uh, takes on Scripture. Uh, doctrines such as transubstantiation, where they believe that the body and blood of Christ become literal in the mouth. As they take it, the scripture does not teach that. There's a lot of miracles and magic and holy water. Uh, baptismal regeneration, by the way, which is not scriptural. That means you're saved through baptism, is not scriptural. Especially in the sense here, uh, not especially, but in addition, in the sense of an infant being regenerated. If anybody after church would like to come up to me and we'll have, if you'd like to show me in your scriptures where an infant can be baptized and saved in scripture, show me. It's not there. Amen. But yet these churches believe in these types of things. Why? Uh, because they're blinded. They, they, uh, they, they have these uh, hierarchies and systems in their church that, that have created this mysterious, these mysterious doctrines. Then letter B, we see the colors of the papal church. The ecumenical movement, her colors here are represented as scarlet and purple, decked with precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup full of abominations and filthiness. It's common knowledge that scarlet and purple are the colors of the papacy, of different articles of attire specific to the Pope when, he, when he's installed into office. Five of them are scarlet. His vest is covered in pearls, uh, adorned with gold and precious stones are to be worn. And, and that's just an example. If you look at other uh, religions, false religions, much of what they do is all about gold. And, and, and uh, when we were driving, I can remember my wife and I were driving 
I was down in San Diego. We were driving down into San Diego, and there's a huge Mormon temple there, or whatever it's called. And it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And, and you see all these things. And, but that's really what the, uh, that's really what, what these, these, uh, this ecumenical movement of, uh, of the papal church and these other false religions, it's all about these, these riches and colors and, and precious stones. Let her see here, we see the actions of the papal church. We're told that this woman was drunken with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And yes, uh, it could certainly be so that it's referring to that particular church or ecumenic or the 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 the, uh, the ecclesiastical woman at that time who martyrs the those tribulation saints. But may I just remind you that during the Middle Ages and in the Inquisitions alone, over fifty million. 50, five, zero million Protestant Christians were killed by the Catholic Church. Some estimations are as high as 200 million. Certainly, certainly uh, uh, the bill fits. We see that the woman sits on a scarlet-colored beast. We see in this scripture. Now, I'm not presenting that to you, uh, all those things, as a fact tonight. I'm just giving you some evidence of what most people think that this woman is. You can do a scriptural study on your own, and, and certainly the Lord will illuminate us when we see him someday. Amen? And we'll understand what all these things mean. But uh, uh, this woman is sitting on a scarlet-colored beast, and this could reveal that the beast, for a time, will support the woman in her ecclesiastical pretensions. Or in other words, they will set up this woman as the state church or the church of Babylon, the, the official church. And many countries you go to today, many countries, the church of England, or if you go to Eastern European countries, they have the Orthodox church. It's the state sanctioned church. And so uh, I believe that during this time, there is going to be a church that the, uh, that the beast works through, but there's going to come a time when the woman will be betrayed by the beast. And I believe it's going to be when the image is set up and people are told, you will, not, you will no longer worship the woman, you will worship the beast. I believe that she will be betrayed. The, the Bible talks about how she will be taken by the ten kings. And, and so there must come a time when the false religions of the world, will, these cults and these things that come together, they will be destroyed once and for all. And so the first doom is really that God is going to, to eliminate the false church. That's, that's what I believe here it's talking about with this woman. So let's talk about the second doom. Well, a little bit more easy to understand, commercial Babylon. Look at Revelations chapter number 18. Let's go there. Revelations chapter number 18. And we're going to read verses 1 through 8. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And it's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit, cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of earth have committed fornication with her. Talking about commercial Babylon, the merchants of earth have waxed rich through an abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and yet, uh, and that ye receive not her plagues. Verse 5, And for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to a works in the cup which she hath filled with 
uh, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Verse 8, therefore shall her plagues come. And notice this in what? One day, death mourning, famine, and she shall utterly burn with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. If you remember through the earlier uh, messages that we've been talking about, we have the four horsemen. I mean, remember the four horsemen. All right, let's, let's shout out some colors tonight. What's the first one? White, all right. Okay, next one. Red, next one. Black, and then the last. Pale, pale. So these four horsemen come. If you remember those messages, the four horsemen bring quite a, quite a bit of, of issues and problems on the earth. You remember that famine and, and war. The red horse means war and all these things. And you remember that that's when the Antichrist comes in and, and he begins to uh, basically put the earth back together. He, he comes in and quickly he makes peace and, and then all these things happen. And, and so, but what I believe is that during this time, Babylon will be set up and Babylon will be somewhat uh, able to keep from being destroyed during all of these things. And it's not until the end, towards the end of Revelation, when God sends a, a massive earthquake and it's going to shake Babylon. And, and here's, here's what the scriptures are saying here. She says, you know, uh, we won't be destroyed. Sorrow will not come. People will think, well, because they're in Babylon, they'll be okay. There'll be a false sense of security but that false sense of security will be taken away very quickly. Chapter 18 of Revelation begins with the phrase, after these things. What things is he talking about? He's referring to, of course, mystical Babylon, which is talking about the ecumenical, excuse me, I keep saying ecumenical, but it's talking about the ecclesiastical Babylon, which was destroyed in the previous chapter. Thus, the city is described in this chapter to be believed to be the actual city of Babylon. So since there's no such... Uh, city named Babylon today, it could be a city that we don't know about, but it could also be a city that's built in the future. The ancient city of Babylon was probably the most significant uh, uh, city that the world has ever seen. You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar. We just talked about that. And so we know that because Babylon refer, is referred to here as the new Babylon, we know that this city will also rival the ancient Babylon in glory and in riches. And, and the Bible talks about that. We see that the new city of Babylon, the Bible describes that the weeping, the world will weep when it's destroyed. Why? Because that's how they make their money. That's how they'll be sustained. And they will weep when it's destroyed. The Bible says in Revelation 18.21 that a millstone, like a millstone cast into the sea, Babylon will be destroyed. This gives us context as we think about the great earthquake. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen over the years movies and commercials for movies when there's great big earthquakes. And what happens to the ground when there's a big earthquake? It splits open, right? And that's what I think about as this millstone is cast into the sea and it sinks into the sea. I think about this earthquake and how the asphalt and, and all these things will open up and much of it will be swallowed in the ground. But that's the second doom. God pronounces destruction upon this epicenter that the world is, the worldwide empire has been built. The beast has made his, has set up shop here and has made Babylon his his, uh, his point of, his, of work, and remember the mark of the beast. 
I believe the mark of the beast will be issued out from Babylon and be controlled uh, from this city. And so the nations of the world will be heavily dependent upon this city. It'll be the center of commercialism and all, all of these things are doomed to, to destruction. And I know it's hard to picture, but picture a city as vast as New York. Picture a city as vast as Chicago, Los Angeles, Paris, or London. Picture one of these great cities, Mindanao is being destroyed in one day, one day. No wonder the, the, the nations of the world will mourn as Babylon is destroyed. Then we get into the third doom. We see the beast and the false prophet. And I don't know about you, but I shed no tears for these guys. Amen. Look at Revelation 19, verse 20. And the beast was taken, Revelation 19, 20. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, <clears throat> which, uh, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast, there's a very important word here. What's the next word? They were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The battle of Armageddon, we're going to talk about in just a moment here, takes place. But these two guys, they get they, they avoid death in the battle of Armageddon, and I think that's on purpose. I think God plucks them out of the battle, doesn't give them the luxury of death, and they are cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The beast and the false prophet are taken alive, and they will pay for eternity for their sinful crimes. That brings us to the fourth doom, the anti-Christian nations. What's going to happen to all the people on the earth so we know Babylon has fallen. We know that the beast and the false prophet God has, has taken. We know the false church God has dealt with. And now we come to all of the nations, the anti-Christ, the anti-Christian, the anti-God uh, uh, nations. Go to Revelations chapter number 19. Look at verse 21. And the what? The remnant. The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth. Who was that? Who had the sword proceeding out of his mouth? Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus Christ comes back, his second coming to rule and to reign, the Bible says he will have a sword proceeding out of his mouth. And Jesus Christ will enter this battle of Armageddon where the remnant will gather themselves together and there'll be a great destruction of human life. God will prepare for this in advance. Hundreds of thousands of birds will be congregating above the battlefield to consume the flesh of the unburied dead. Revelation chapter number 19, look at verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that will fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together into the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of them that sat on that sit on them, and the flesh of men, both free and bond, both small and great. The Bible describes the battle of Armageddon as grapes being crushed in the wrath of God's winepress. This feast is described also in Ezekiel chapter number 39. I'll just summarize it for you, but you can read about it later. Ezekiel 39, Ezekiel says, Speak unto every feathered fowl, thus shall be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men and with all men of war. The destruction of this great army will be brought about by supernatural means. It, will be, it very well could be that great hail that falls during the seventh vial. The seventh vial is taking place during this whole time. 
There's a great hail that falls. It could be that great hail uh, kills many people during this time. It could be that uh, the sword that proceeds out of the mouth of Christ. And, and we don't know exactly how this is going to happen, but we know it's going to be supernatural. We know that God, uh, it's foolish for man to fight against God. It's foolish. We read about this and it's so far away. It's so uh, almost academic for us to read about this. But may we bring that home a little bit in our lives and realize how foolish it is to fight against God on any practical level. And all God's people said, amen, don't fight against the Lord, amen. Uh, I want to be on the right side, amen. I want to be on his team. And so that's, that's a wonderful thing. The destruction of this great army is brought quickly, and God will, he will end this battle, and it will be made clear that even if mankind decided to band completely together and fight against God, with all available firepower that he has, will not win against God. Then we come to the fifth doom, Gog and Magog. I wish I had time, and maybe I'll have my dad do a message on this. He has a great message on this. But Gog and Magog, very interesting portion of Scripture. The beast and the false prophet, remember, where are they at this point? The lake of fire. Where are the beast and false prophet? I just want to make sure you're listening. I know you're ready for in and out. Amen. And uh, then we know that later Satan will be cast in the bottomless pit. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the followers of the beast and the Antichrist are crushed at the battle of Armageddon. And so we understand that God deals with all of this. And then Jesus Christ comes to rule and reign for how long? A thousand years. It's called the millennial reign. But as soon as that millennial reign is over, the thousand years is over, Satan will be loosed. The Bible says will be loosed from the bottomless pit. And the Bible says that he will find a vast multitude ready to believe his lie once again and to serve Satan once again. The Bible says that he will gather them from the four corners of the earth. The number the Bible describes as the sand of the sea, Revelation chapter number 20, verse 8 and 9. This worldwide revolt against Christ will be the last, not one of the, but the last ditch effort on Satan's behalf and on men who choose again to reject Christ. Satan will mobilize another vast army and will compass the camp of the saints, the holy land, the beloved city where Christ will be ruling and reigning. We'll talk about that in another message. But once again, proving that the heart of man, if given a choice, will certainly choose to disobey God. The Bible says that foolishness is bound in the heart of man. The last final act of Satan and his followers will end in a moment. This will not be a process. The Bible says that God will extinguish them with fire. Like all the ways of God and all the ways that he's dealt with man, God has given men opportunities of grace and men fail. Oftentimes people think, they think, they try to outthink God. <laughs> and they begin to think, why does God allow this? Why did God allow Satan to be loose? Why did God do this? And Why did God do that? And there's a lot of those questions. And the truth is, if you take the scriptures and you look at it, and this is a very poor example, but if you take the scriptures and you look at it as a circle, God deals with man in every single way imaginable. I believe, this is, this is my best explanation, and this is an explanation that's not original with me, but that my parents have helped me with and other people that I've talked to, is that God it deals with man in every way to show that man will fail if given a choice. He first deals with man in innocence. Remember Adam and Eve, placed in the garden. People say, why did God create sin? God did not create sin. 
God created a perfect environment. God created a situation where there was a choice. Innocence. Adam and Eve did not even know what sin was, yet they chose to sin against God. So in the innocence form, they chose to sin. They failed. They failed under the that age of con- conscience, and you don't have to believe in these different you know, titles of these different ages, but if you read your scriptures, you'll know that God dealt differently. Somebody told me one time, I don't believe in dispensationalism, but they believe that God dealt differently with man throughout time. I'm like, okay, it's all right. You know, it's okay. We don't, have to, we don't have to argue about that. That's We're all going to heaven. Amen. Someday we'll be there together. But they failed under conscience. We're talking about Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain rose up and slew his brother. They failed under self-governance. Think about those in Noah's day. Every man did that which is right in their own eyes. Only Noah walked with the Lord and found grace in his family. They failed under the headship, the family headship. Think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They failed under the law. Think about the Ten Commandments that were given. They failed under grace, and we're under grace today. Jesus Christ came. He did away with the law. You and I are forgiven. Our sins are forgiven. We're under grace. We don't have to, we don't have to sacrifice goats and, and sheep to pay for our sins. We're under grace, and yet we still fail. And then, finally, under the rule of Jesus Christ himself, a thousand years of Christ's presence on the earth, a thousand years of universal peace, universal blessing, And yet still, man will persist in rebelling against his maker, just like, just like in the Garden of Eden. Notice how God brings it full circle to help us understand how desperate we are. Let me give you the sixth sixth doom. Don't say sixth doom ten times fast. The sixth doom. Here we go. And that's Satan. Revelation chapter number 20, look at verse 10. Let's read this together. Everybody there? Revelation 20, 10. Let's read it together. Here we go. Ready to begin. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever, as punishment for his final act of rebellion and as rebellion against God. Satan, God's program for mankind is over. And Satan will be seized and he'll be hurled into the lake of fire. Well, he will find his comrades, the beast and the false prophet, who've been waiting there, by the way, for a thousand years. Friend, I hope you understand tonight, the Bible teaches there is no such thing as the annihilation of the soul. The soul lives forever. The Bible does not teach that. There are religions, uh, cults, false religions that will teach that when you die, you go into the ground and that's it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is an eternity and our souls live forever. You will live somewhere forever. The Bible says that the lake of fire was not prepared for us, but for the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, 41. At this point in time, the devil and his angels, the beast, the false prophet, they're all there in the lake of fire. They're the only inhabitants. But soon the souls of men who rejected God after their great court date, at the great white throne, will be sentenced and join Satan as well. That brings us to our seventh doom. The Bible calls them the wicked dead and the great white throne judgment. Go to Revelation chapter number 20, verse 11, the most sobering passage of Scripture, I think, in all of Scripture. Revelation chapter number 20, verse 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, 
and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Death and hell were cast into the what? Lake of fire, which is the what? The second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I hope that verse gets to you tonight. There's no general judgment in Scripture. The church will already be judged. And don't forget tonight that we stand forgiven. Praise the Lord Almighty. That cross behind us tonight is not just a piece of furniture, but it's a symbol of your forgiveness. God's forgiven you. So your judgment seat will not be like this judgment seat. Your judgment seat, you will not not be judged for your sin. You'll be judged for the grace that God's given you. Praise God. And may we all strive for that goal. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. But the church will already be judged. Aren't you thankful for that? (laughs) This judgment will be for the wicked dead only. We see here that death and hell are personified. Death, as we are to understand it, is the grave that holds the body. Hell is the compartment that holds the souls of the wicked dead. Remember in Luke chapter number 16 where the rich man lifted up his eyes? Where? In hell. And remember what he said, please have Lazarus dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. And so this compartments, and and I'm not going to get into all of these these terminologies. That would take a long time, what death and hell, all these things mean. But very simply tonight, we understand that there's going to come a point where death and hell and these different things that God has done, they're going to be finally judged and cast in the lake of fire. This means, though, that death and Hell will be no more. Death or the body of sin will be no more. Sin will be destroyed. Hell, the punishment for rejecting God, will be no more. The final judgment will be made. And probably the most terrible words written in our English Bible, whosoever was not found written in the book of life will be cast in a lake of fire. This is not a study on this judgment specifically, but I want you to consider the gravity of that day. There will be people in that judgment who are good people. I think about neighbors. They're just good people. They pay their taxes. They drive a truck. If you drive a truck, you're a good person. They're neighbors. They're they're loved ones. They're people that may have lived their life trying to do their best. But the Bible says, listen to me, please. The Bible says if their name is not found written in the book of life, if God wrote a caveat there, it's not there. And so the gravity of this situation is that every single human being on this planet who has not asked Jesus Christ to save them will spend eternity in the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says. I believe that you can extrapolate from Scripture that there are degrees of judgment. You can disagree with me on that, but I believe that because the Bible says the books were open and they're judged according to their works. You can disagree with me there. That's okay. But friends, all who reject Christ will be cast into the lake of fire. There's no other place. And for eternity, we'll be suspended in time and space, suffering forever. No love, no rest, no happiness of any kind, no hope of reprieve.
just eternal separation from all that is good. Cain will be there. Those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah will be there. Pharaoh will be there. Ahab will be there. Jezebel will be there. The scribes and the Pharisees, many of them will be there. The nations who rejected Christ will be there. Everyone who dies holding to Allah as their God will be there. Every Sikh who dies holding on to their many gods will be there. Every Buddhist who believes in reincarnation will be there. Every atheist and agnostic who thinks that God cannot be known will be there. And may I just say today, as God's people, may we see people that way. No wonder Jude calls this day the judgment, the judgment of the great day. When this judgment is over, his devil, the devil, his angels, the ungodly of, of, of all millennia's past will be consigned to this doom. And may I just say tonight, thank God for salvation. Amen. Thank God that it's free. Amen. You understand you don't have to pay for salvation. Amen. Some people think, here's what they think, and this is not in the Bible. If it is, come show me. But some people think that they can earn their way to heaven, that if they do good enough deeds, somehow they'll make it. But the Bible says in Ephesians chapter number two, for by grace are you saved. Grace is unmerited favor. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of works, not of works lest any man should boast. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, well, I did a good job. I, I did everything. I, I crossed my, I did all these things that God told me to do. And I'm, I'm, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is we're going to get to heaven and we're going to say, by God's grace, I'm here. Amen. By God's, and if you're here tonight and maybe all these things, it's a little bit uh, scary and all these things are a little bit up here. But I just want to say this. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, that's the most important thing. Amen. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. How many of you remember the day? You remember the day. I, I don't know where it was for you. I remember where it was for me, but maybe you were kneeling by a bed. Maybe you were in an altar like this, maybe at a camp when you were a kid. Maybe your dad or mom uh, talked to you, but how many of you remember that day when you asked Jesus to save you? The Bible says that when you ask Christ to save you, you know it's wonderful? He never says no. How many don't deserve heaven? How many don't deserve his grace? I know I don't. I know I don't, but the day I ask Christ to save me, the Bible says that your name is recorded in the book of life. Isn't that a blessing?